Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 16 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that dives a little deeper into the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, joined today by two great superintendent guests. The first is Ron Furlong of Avalon Golf Links in Burlington, Washington. Ron is a regular contributor to the magazine, and his latest story, which you can read in the February issue, is titled, So, What Did We Learn About Staffing? Ron shares his own 2020 experience, as well as perspective from two other superintendents on the other side of the country. The second is Matthew Wharton of Carolina Golf Club in Charlotte. He is our back page columnist, America's Greenkeeper. His February column, Inside the Numbers, provides another look at our state of the industry statistics. Matthew also shares some book recommendations on the podcast, spilling over from his January column, Flipping Pages, as the calendar turns. Before those two conversations, a few quick notes. I'll be hosting the 10th annual GCI TweetUp. Tag it online, hashtag GCI TweetUp 21, and the 2021 Super Social Media Awards at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, March 31st. This is a virtual event online this year. Obviously not at the Golf Industry Show. We will be back in person at that event next year. Nominations are open through February 25th. Winners will be honored in at least these categories. The John Kaminsky Award for Social Media Leadership, Best Overall Use of Social Media, Best Twitter Feed, Best Use of Video, Best Idea Shared on Social Media, and our Conservation Award. There might be a few other categories as well. Thanks to Aquatrolls, which has sponsored the tweet up since its inception way back in 2012. If you know a talented young writer, editor, or even turf student, we are seeking an editorial intern this summer. Come work with guys Cipriano and me, writing feature stories, news articles, contributing to our social media accounts, learning podcast production, editing, promotion, proofreading digital and print content, assisting in website management, visiting successful golf facilities, and, guy wanted to mention, learning how to work with wild personalities like the two of us. This is a paid position. It will last at least 12 weeks. If you're interested, send a resume, a cover letter, and three examples of your published work to Brittany Cachito at B-C-O-C-C-I-T-T-O. That's B-C-O-C-C-I-T-T-O at G-I-E dot net. Finally, our new Turf Heads Guide to Grilling, which encourages industry professionals everywhere to share glamour shots of food on a grill or serving plates, cooking videos, team bonding images, recipes, and tips is up and running. Just use the Turf Heads Grilling hashtag and tag GCI Magazine and Solutions for Turf. That's Solutions, the number four turf on Twitter. Materials will be collected throughout the year and shared in a printed Turf Heads Guide to Grilling insert in the December Turf Heads Takeover issue of GCI Magazine. Industry professionals whose materials are chosen for that printed guide will be eligible to win a team cookout in 2022. AquaAid Solutions is our partner in this tasty new endeavor. Now, Matthew Wharton and Ron Furlong after the break. 
Again, my first guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, Ron Furlong. You know him as the superintendent at Avalon Golf Links in Burlington, Washington. You also know him as a regular contributor to Golf Course Industry Magazine. If you're online, he has a great new story about the Golf Industry Show, the 2021 virtual edition. But we're going to talk today about his story in the February issue, now live online. So what did we learn about staffing? Reflections on how superintendents altered labor plans in 2020 and looking ahead at what might stick in 2021. Ron, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Matt. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. I think we're both very cold, a lot of winter weather, both in the Pacific Northwest and along the Great Lakes. I agree. The winter's finally hit here. <laughs> Everywhere. So your story in the issue, so what did we learn about staffing? One of kind of an unplanned package of labor stories and columns. There were actually two stories and two columns in the issue about labor. And to be honest, we could probably devote every story and every column of every issue to labor, and we still wouldn't figure it out because labor will always be the top priority. Even now, during a global pandemic, labor is statistically, according to our State of the Industry survey, the top priority. How did you guys fare labor-wise during 2020? Well, obviously it was an odd year. We are open 12 months a year here. We're about an hour north of Seattle, um, up near the Canadian border, but winter gets pretty slow and we do tend to get some snow. And I think we got snow last year in February. So it was starting out as a, a typical slow winter. And then we got shut down for a few weeks. I think it was March, my timing here, late March into early April is when the governor shut all the golf courses down. And so we were down about three weeks, and that period of staffing was, was unique. Um, we used a lot of volunteers because a lot of my staff was laid off, and some of them didn't want to come back. So we used a lot of uh, volunteers through the pro shop for mowing and just kind of getting us through uh, that odd period where we weren't open. And then, but once we opened, uh, obviously, like many courses, we were extremely busy all year, I believe, it was the busiest year since 98. The course has been open since 1990. And I think only 1998 was a busier year. And that with being shut down for a few weeks, too. So labor-wise, we got a grant. So we were able to staff up a little bit above what we normally would have when we came back in April. And there was uh, a pretty good pool to choose from. I didn't have to advertise. I had a lot of people coming in the door. But... Really, for the year, I don't think we ended up with the labor number wasn't too much bigger than it normally was. I think what we ended up doing was just being a little more creative with labor and not really staffing up too much. And that was one of the points you made in your story, adaptation, creativity. Uh, We'll get to that in a few minutes. In terms of numbers throughout the year, you said you never really staffed all the way up. What was what was the peak? Did you get anywhere close to 100% or was it closer to like 80% of at least crew hours? I think we were a little over 100%. We probably really? okay. had um but not much. So, and I think a lot of it was that early that early push when we came back. So, I would say April May I was probably staffed more than I've been before, but then things kind of settled down. Normally I would add more people May June. And those people didn't get at it. So the people that we added in April kind of stuck through and 
So by May, we were at our normal numbers, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. for the rest of the summer. And the challenge was so much play. So trying to do things and keep the golf course at a level that we are used to, but having less time to do it became a pretty big challenge. And if folks go back now, I think almost exactly 11 months to really the start of when the pandemic became the top story every single day uh, in every news outlet, and it was every conversation, Seattle was kind of the early U.S. epicenter. Was there any pressure? Was there any confusion in being really at at the very front of the wave? Because you didn't have anybody to react to for anything. All your counterparts in and around Seattle reacting to what Governor Jansley was saying and, and doing and mandating. You guys had no template. Was, was there any extra pressure or confusion early on? Yeah, I think so. I think a little bit. We were... I think that was the whole year. It was just this, okay. this uncertainty. So I think we were feeling the uncertainty when we, because uh, I think everything got shut down statewide except golf courses in March. I can't remember the dates. But so we, we had about a week and a half where schools got shut down and, and um, restaurants and everything got shut down, but golf courses were still open. And it was just kind of a really weird period. We were so busy and it, almost felt odd being that busy and then we got shut down and i think yeah i think being out there at, at the front of it was a little bit odd at the beginning and i think that was the period, especially when we were open and the rest of the state was shut down it, it, it was a weird a week and a half there i remember that sure yeah march 11th kind of the start of everything and just a, a weird yeah, day but okay. again you guys were dealing with it earlier than almost anybody else in the country yeah what were, and you've addressed some of them, but what were some of your biggest challenges throughout that time of the year and really throughout all of 2020, Ron? I think just the, the amount of play was really challenging in that trying to get things done that we normally didn't have trouble getting done. Um, one of the nice things is we have a 27-hole course, so we have an opening nine. Uh, we have a northwest and a south course, and... Um, we change that opening nine each day. So the north will turn to the west, and then the south course uh, for that day would open at a later time. But normally that later time would be like 10 o'clock, let's say, in the summer, where because we were so busy last year, uh, that got moved up to 9 and then I think eventually 8.30. So getting things done, and we don't have a huge staff, we uh, so the, the 27 holes, we, obviously we have to take care of the front nine first. So getting front nine, back nine, and then getting to that third nine became a real challenge last year. So we had to get creative, a lot less walk mowing, uh, a lot of triplexing, a lot of rolling. And I think the biggest thing we did is really just cut down on our rough mowing, which we've been doing, kind of implementing a program here the last few years. This course, when it was built... Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, was very wooded between each hole, uh, alders and cottonwoods, and um, not, not real nice trees, but just real thick. And over the years, it's gotten cleared out between all the holes, and it's not really wooded anymore. Uh, it's kind of open between the, between the holes. But what we did, or what the superintendents before me have done, is this has all been newly mowed areas. So the rough just kept growing and growing and growing. So what we've been doing the last few years is kind of eliminating a lot of that, letting it, it kind of come back. 
naturally, and we really uh, accelerated that this past year. And we created, uh, we probably doubled the no-mo zones uh, on the course. So we have kind of a, a step situation out there of rough we don't mow at all, and then rough we mow at a couple inches high, and then, we, you know, we go down to the three-quarter inch rough in the primary rough. So um, I think that was the biggest thing. And then watering uh, was a challenge. Um, we were having some pump issues. Um, we, we have an older system. So getting that water window at night and uh, one of our pumps went down for a couple months and having to water in the morning was, was very challenging. Um, I guess those are some of the biggest challenges, irrigation and, and rough mowing and, and then just and spraying, I guess, uh, also when we had to go out and apply uh, plant protectants um, with that third night opening earlier, uh, spraying became an issue. So we ended up starting a half hour earlier. Uh, normal, normally we start an hour before golf, so we went most of the year an hour and a half before golf, and, and that really made a big difference um, getting out there, even though it was dark. Um, getting that jump uh, was beneficial. Right. You mentioned that in the story, and, and you basically cut off, every, like, you, you addressed everything I was about to say in terms of afternoon and evening mowing, eliminating mow areas and, and letting some rough grow up. You used more wetting agents and PGRs, and yeah, that 30-minute earlier start time. What what did that work out to? Was that 5 or 4.30 even? When when were you guys getting out there that you were starting 30 minutes earlier than normal? Um, let's see. The earliest summer starting time they have is 7. So oh, okay. we used okay. to start at so we would start at 5.30 instead. And then the weekends, their earliest time, they have a tea time is 6.30, so then we would end up starting at 5 on the weekends. The elimination of certain mow areas, the earlier start time, any of the other changes and adaptations that you made in 2020, do you plan to keep any of those switches as this year rolls on, 2021? I think so. I think um, I, I really like the hour and a half um, ahead of golf. I think I toyed with it years ago, um, and then, you know, you, I would take a survey of the crew and say, how late, you know, when do you guys want to start? And they always choose the later time. But the other thing, and you mentioned it, was the afternoon mowing. I had a guy, uh, a couple guys, clubhouse uh, personnel, who volunteered for us last March, and then they kind of stayed on through the summer, and what they would do is mow in the afternoons, which I didn't do a lot of that in the past. So having somebody, when you know we're leaving, going out the door at 2 o'clock, having somebody just starting mowing um, for four or five hours, even though it's real busy, but if they're off in the um, deeper rough and the secondary rough, um, I, I really like that. So I'm going to kind of utilize that more, and even some weekend afternoon mowing. Uh, it's one of the things I think I'll keep going this year. You also talked for the story with Doug Larson of the Shore Club in Cape May County, New Jersey, and with Joey Franco of Daniel Island Club in Charleston, South Carolina. And you quoted them throughout, and and they had some great advice. What were some of the things you learned in talking with them about labor? I think it was Doug. Talked about the um, gap mowing. Right, yep. Yeah, I think he brought that policy from a different club he mentioned where they actually shut the course down or shut the, the opening tee down um, from 10.30 to 12 every day. And then they would take their lunch, I think, at 10.30 to 11. So when they came out of 11, this gap had formed uh, that they could kind of ride this gap the rest of the day. 
um, where they wouldn't have anybody teeing off for an hour, plus they have that half hour where they're behind people. And it, I guess if you can get, you know, the powers that be to, to go with something like that, and I think that's a private club, so a little harder with these revenue-driven clubs, but I like that idea a lot. The other thing is for our course here, the 27-hole course, once a week, and this has been a policy for years, but it was really important this year, having that third nine start at noon, um, or actually it was 11 this year. Um, so once a week I was betting that would be the day we could get out with the sprayer a little more effectively. But instead of having that third nine start at 8.30 every day, once a week we have it start at 11, um, and that was huge uh, to get out, and, and especially with the, the sprayer. Believe it or not, we're almost six weeks into 2021. That doesn't seem possible. Early in your story, you addressed what you called the early mystery of 2021, and, and a quote from your story, how will the ultimate vaccination of a majority of the population affect day-to-day life and therefore the revenue of things like golf courses? If life returns to some sort of normalcy, will the golf numbers that skyrocketed a year ago dwindle again? If life does not return to normalcy, will golf continue to be a retreat for many who found the game for the first time or found the game again? last year will a continuation of the pandemic finally result in less money being able to be spent on escapes like golf what kind of labor pool will there be to draw from always drawing it back to labor uh there's a lot there a lot of questions but any answers yet or is early 2021 just basically the 13th and 14th months of 2020 doesn't look like it's going to be a lot different this year um our numbers i mean we're we're only five weeks into the year but i think january was way up for us um i know a lot of courses aren't having any revenue right now but just uh, for us it's been uh, more of the same so with the slow rollout of the vaccines and these variants that they're worried about it, it just seems like this year is going to look a lot like last year i haven't noticed um, any drop-off in play. So I think, you know, people are still finding the, the money to to have these escapes, and I think the escapes are still still few enough out there, uh, at least up in this part of the country, um, where golf is still, you know, on people's minds. And um, and I think we did get a lot of new golfers last year. So, I you know, I, I have no idea how that's going to pan out over the the few years ahead of us, but it looks like I think we've gained new players. Um, and uh, that's my guess. I, I think uh, ultimately I think numbers might be up here for, for a while. Outside of, as you mentioned in the story, a majority of people being vaccinated and maybe some semblance of normalcy, whether it's July or October, whenever. What else are you looking forward to in 2021, Ron? Could be labor-related, could be anything else. I think I'm looking for what I found a bit not enjoyable, but um, I think personally, and I've been doing this for a long time, um, I started working on golf courses in 1988, and I think challenges have always been big for me. So the, this 2020 was obviously a challenge for everybody, but trying to, and I think going forward with not, a, not only a pandemic, but, you know, environmental changes and, and the way we just do things differently. And 
manage golf courses differently from when I started. Um, the superintendents I worked for 30 years ago. It, I, I enjoyed the challenges of, of figuring out new ways to do things, and um, I think that's here to stay. So um, I probably have about 10 more years of, of doing this job before I retire, but I think I'm looking forward to just doing it differently, just continuing to, to do it better and, and not relying on, on old uh, methods that maybe are outdated. I think that's the thing I'm looking forward to the most, and I think 2020 made us, if nothing, you know, if, if anything positive can be gained from it, I think we all learned to maybe just do things a little more efficiently and um, and find new ways to do things. So um, I think that's the part I'm kind of looking forward to. Again, whenever that happens, whether it's April or July or October or next January, God forbid, uh, Ron, always good to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And again, folks, if you haven't read it already, Ron's new story in the February issue of Golf Course Industry Magazine. So what did we learn about staffing? There's a lot more in there that we did not talk about on this podcast. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks, Matt. My next guest on Beyond the Page, you know his name, you know his face. He is now in his second year on the back page of Golf Course Industry Magazine. It is America's Greenskeeper, Matthew Wharton. Welcome back to Beyond the Page. How you doing? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing well. We talked before we got going here about so many things, the Super Bowl and Brady versus Montana, which you're begrudgingly giving up the goat mantle for Super Joe, uh, LeBron and Jordan, Southern Wrestling, NASCAR, all sorts of things, and you even quipped, when did Beyond the Page become a sports talk show? It's always a sports talk show. We talk about golf. Hey, yeah, you're right. That's funny. I hadn't even thought of it that way. But um, And we didn't even talk PGA Tour. Goodness no. gracious. Uh, wow. How did we... How did we talk about all that and not talk about what happened in Phoenix over the weekend? <laughs> nice 61 for Spieth, and then he doesn't even win. Well, I I don't know how many people uh, know this or not, and I don't, I don't have the actual statistic, but this was something that I noticed at a very young age, and it pretty much holds true across all tours, European tour, Corn Ferry, LPGA, and I don't know what it is about the number 63, but it's amazing how many times when a player shoots 63 or lower, they rarely break 70 the following day. And if they do break 70, it's probably because they shot 63 or lower on a par 70 venue, hmm. and they and they managed to get in with a 69. And it's funny how guys can back up a 64 with a 66, but they back up a 63 with a 71. And so as fun as Saturday was and exciting to see Jordan holding putts from all over the place and making it look like 2015 again, when he got into the clubhouse with 61, you knew the odds were stacked against him. Um, and it's just, it's just funny. Like I said, I, I don't know what the hard, fast statistic is. I'd, I'd love to see it if it's ever been calculated. But if you if you were to wager every time somebody 
somebody broke 63, if you wagered that they wouldn't break 70 the following day, over the course of a lifetime, you'd make a ton of money. And so now BTP is a sports gambling podcast as well. <laughs> well, it's the new thing, I guess, according to everything <laughs> I'm seeing on the on Golf Channel, NBC Sports Network, and um, Barstool, et cetera. Yeah, so it's the wave of the future. <laughs> Looking at the wave of the future, your February column, every time it seems like we're not going to write or talk anything else about the State of the Industry Survey, something else comes up, and you dived into that February, your February column, I should say, dived into the report a little bit more, some of the numbers that stood out, and folks will obviously have a chance to read this a little later in the week online, and then a few weeks from now when the issue arrives in mailboxes. But what really stood out to you? Because you filled out the survey as well, uh, and, and thank you as always for doing that, and thank you to everybody who filled out the survey. And so you had the perspective as a participant, but also as an observer and someone who's writing about it. What stood out to you about the report this year? Well, I always look forward to the report, and, and I, I would just say one thing. You know, everyone likes to look at the at the data, and you'll always have more reliable data with the more uh, participation we get. And so, I would just encourage all my peers out there: it doesn't take that long. Just do the surveys. If if you're the type of person that's going to use the survey data for your benefit, then you know, please help us out, and let's get even more reliable data by getting more survey participation. So that'll, that'll be first and foremost. You know, the, when the issue came out, we had so much great information, and um, I think what we did was we held back some of the agronomy data for mm-hmm. February, and so that was really what kind of allowed me to, a uh, guy was kind enough to, to share, you know, here's the agronomic results that didn't make it into print in January, what you think, and then I was able to take those, and kind of write about how that relates to our experience in 2020 uh, dealing with the pandemic here at Carolina Golf Club. And the agronomy data, that was actually my story in the February issue, which, again, folks will have a chance to read a little later this week online. Looked at the data, talked with four different superintendents in four different regions of the country, four different types of, uh, of growing, uh, and also four different really public, private, and number of holes breakdown. Had a, a nine-hole public course in Vermont, uh, an 18-hole private in California, 27-hole private in Georgia, uh, so really all over the place. And wanted to get that anecdotal information, but really the statistical information, the survey information, and, and this was one of the things that I'm sure stood out to you, was 89% of respondents said that their turf conditions were at least as good as, if not better than, uh, 2020 than they were in 2019. And that's despite increased uh, cart traffic, increased rounds, rounds up almost 14% in 2020. 89% of respondents said conditions were better than, or at least as good as, uh, the previous year, which, astounding, really. That was a tremendous statistic, and uh, I think I kind of summarized it by saying, you know, I think the 
biggest thing we might have learned from a year ago is that the grass can handle more. You see that touted on Twitter, uh, you know, sort of on the turf Twitter community that, you know, grass can take more, it can handle more. But until you actually do it, uh, and 2020 was one of those years where it did. Our rounds were up over 27%. We broke the 30,000-round barrier for the first time uh, in my tenure. And I, I've been here 15 years, but I've, I've been through 16 golf seasons. And, uh, you know, ironically, our busiest month of 2020 was April. And April was the month when we had zero guest play and zero cart rounds because uh, our members probably went a grand total of about 43 days where uh, carts were not permitted. And that kind of spanned from like that last week of March through the entire month of April into the first part of May but before we, we finally went back to uh, – single rider only and we're still here we are february of 2021 we're still single rider only mm-hmm. and um uh, but yeah i mean uh, april 2020 versus april 2019 almost a 75 percent increase in the number of rounds played just uh, unbelievable and our walking rounds for the year was up almost 200 percent. i think i said 193 wow. percent walking rounds were up um 2020 versus 2019 but uh and and, you know we did we got a lot of we got a lot of good uh compliments about the golf course a lot of positive remarks and 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 i think by and large i was impressed with with how well the golf course tolerated it uh me personally i'm not going to sit here and say that the golf course was better in 2020 versus 2019 or 2018 um especially 2018 being such a a big year for us being a, associated with uh, a USGA championship. Mm-hmm. But by and large, it did tolerate it way better than uh, expected as a whole. Um, our greens definitely show the signs of wear and tear, um, pitch marks, ball marks. You run 6,500-plus additional rounds through a golf course, it, it's going to show some wear and tear. But but just from you know the, the, the tees, the fairways, uh, you know, the, the additional cart traffic, it really only just kind of showed up at the exit points. And some of our definition from, from fairway to rough was, you know, kind of beat down and not as crisp as I would have liked. But, but overall, just, just the overall aesthetic of the golf course, yeah, it, it tolerated pretty well. You said a minute ago you went almost six weeks where every round – was a walking round, which again helps when uh, you have six weeks of walking, you increase the walking round percentage up 193%. It's incredible. While a lot of courses were closed, uh, and maybe that's what they can attribute some of the increased uh, agronomic quality to, do you attribute just not having carts on at all for six weeks as being one of the big factors in having at least as good a year? I know you don't want to compare 2020 to 2019 or 2018 or anything else, but your turf was not worse last year than any previous year. Do you attribute the the not having carts on for almost six weeks to, well, to that or something else, Matthew? 
Well, well, you know, the ironic thing is I remember having uh, multiple conversations uh, throughout the month of April and early May with not just my assistants but with colleagues in the industry. I, I remember making a statement on more than one occasion where I said it, it really is kind of ironic that we're not getting the, our, we're not getting the bang for our buck on, on this particular situation because April was a really wet month. We had like seven and a quarter inches of rainfall and it was kind of a cold month. We, we had a, we had a cold, wet spring. And so with, with, uh, you know, we have bent grass greens, but the remainder of our golf course is Bermuda grass. But the grass was just not growing. It was slow to wake up and really slow to get going. And so as we're going through this period of no cart traffic, the golf course was still just kind of just laying there. It wasn't like it was actively growing and had an opportunity to to grow robustly and benefit from the traffic prohibition. It, it, it's, it was kind of bizarre and ironic. I, I remember making that statement to, to multiple friends during that period. It was, I really felt like we just had you, if you took the traffic off the golf course for six weeks in the middle of the summer when the, when the turf is growing vigorously, I think you would have seen a tremendous difference hmm. versus when we took the traffic off the golf course. I think I know the answer to this, and obviously you can only speak for your own club, but do you think there will be any long-lasting effects from 2020 in green committees or anybody else at at various clubs in position of power uh, and decision-making to perhaps give the turf a little more of a breather, whether it is a couple of weeks of walking only in April, or as you just said, maybe a couple of weeks walking only during peak growing season later in the summer. Uh, there's a course up in Vermont that I'm, I'm writing about right now that they were closed for, I think it was another couple of weeks beyond when they would normally open up and that helped them. Any long lasting effects from 2020, or is it going to get back to business as usual, maybe as early as this year, if not next year? Uh, I would like to think that facilities that never really permitted their staff to have a closed day or a closed week and, and maybe had their hand forced uh, saw and recognized the benefit and, and, and maybe they'll consider that going forward. But but I think overall it'll be back to business as usual as soon as possible. Um, I know that even though there's still no rakes on the golf course here, and they're still single riders, I expect it to all return back to pre-COVID whenever permitted. And right now, I think you've still got a lot of – I expect the first half of 2021 to just be a continuation of last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still have a lot of – a lot of my members are not – they're not working from the office. They're working from home, and when they're working from home – they're able to slip out onto the golf course more frequently. And, uh, so, yeah, th- things aren't slowing down here anytime soon that I can see. Well, and that was one of the facts, too, that stood out to me in my reporting. It was for the January issue, but in terms of really breaking this year down, not into months or quarters, but really halves, first half, second half, you're going to be able to look at 
pretty much everything up to about June 30th uh, as a continuation of last year, like you said, and does it uptick in the second half of the year, July 1st on. Who knows? Time will tell. We're five months away. Um, but I think you're right that at least the first part of 2021 will probably look very similar to 2020 in terms of rounds played, in terms of outside interests uh, being able to take hold on golf rounds. There won't be much competition from sporting events or eating out or going to the movies, things like that. Uh, so your point on folks still coming out, I think, is is well put. I think one thing that won't change from 2020 to 21 to 22 is in your column, Matthew, you wrote about some of the biggest challenges. And one of those challenges, at least for your crew, was themselves. What did you mean by that? Well, for us, I mean, it kind of goes back, you know, 2019 was the first year that I really started to uh, encounter an issue with with finding uh, reliable help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that just carried over into 2020. And then so to pile the pandemic on top of that situation really made it very difficult because you're, you need help. But at the same time, you know, there were periods where I was apprehensive about even wanting to interview people because I didn't know who was coming through the door and whether or not that person coming through the door may or may not be bringing the virus into our environment. Uh, it, it was a, it was a real, a real challenge and, and kind of a struggle to sort of weigh out the situation. It's like, we need the help, but is, is there a possibility that the help could set us back because we in turn could uh, encounter the virus and, and, and multiples of us uh, end up being out. And so that, that was a, a huge issue and, and probably the biggest obstacle, I think. Um, just, just trying to locate people, trying to interview them, hire them, train them, and do it in a safe manner. Uh, I think all of us are probably thankful and, and, and we're all better off for enhanced sanitation um so those are things that will that will continue as we go forward and we'll all be better for it uh but uh and i don't know that the um the labor issue is going to go away anytime soon um i know i saw some reports on on the twitter machine this weekend about some additional issues with h2b uh somebody had posted that they had heard from their regular crew that they weren't going to be able to make it back. I saw that tweet. So, I can't remember who it was, but I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, it's like I said, I mean, 2019 was my first encounter. I, I can't remember if I shared this in a column or not, but in the last two years combined, 19 and 20, I've made 17 hires, and these are full-time year-round positions with benefits, you know, for, for just being on the crew. Two, two remain out of the 17 hires. Wow. So out of those 15, none were terminated. Only one gave a two-week notice. You know, the other 14 ghosted us at some point in time or another. Uh, I think one guy quit. And he was like a week shy of a one year an- of his one-year anniversary. Uh, another guy lasted a month. Another guy lasted a couple of weeks. We had one guy last summer last four hours. 
and it's just, you know, it, um, I hate to say, say it this way because I'm not a big fan of this phrase, but it is what it is, I'm afraid. Uh, and we're just still trying to find ways to, to, to navigate through this new normal, if you will, as it relates to um, the job market. And this was, I think, addressed in the January issue, and Guy and I might have talked about it on last month's Beyond the Page, but the labor market and the labor problems in this industry were the top-ranked challenge in the State of the Industry survey. It was, I think, over 50% said labor was still their biggest challenge for 2021. Number two was COVID-19. Still, labor, far and away, number one, even over a global pandemic and a novel virus that we hadn't seen before a year. Just astounding. Like Labor is always going to be the biggest challenge. Exactly, and and like I said, so when you put the when you combine the two, it's just uh, you know it, it's a huge obstacle. And I have read some reports where some folks in certain parts of the country uh, had some some good luck and some success um, hiring some people as a result of you know a lot of people did lose their jobs when the pandemic uh, kind of struck at first, and I think there was a lot of thought that you know, with the high unemployment numbers that that created a pool of people. But, you know, when some of those people are uh, willing to just take the money to stay home and and then the other thing is we're looking at, you know, I had this, um, I had to do a presentation at our annual meeting over Zoom at the end of January. And I was talking about, you know, the biggest challenge and obstacle is you know finding young people or or old i mean in the case of those 17 that i hired they were they weren't all young so this is not a um you know this has nothing to do with the generation i mean they were they were young old middle-aged uh they came from all different backgrounds but just finding people in general that, that want to get up early that want to work outdoors in the elements and, and do it for a wage that's less than what folks can make, you know, working in the air conditioning or, or doing something much, much simpler. It's a challenge. I, I think the, the industry recognizes that. And I, th- I think we're, we're making strides at uh, trying to, um, to raise those wages. Uh, and I know we've done that here as well, but, um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out over the next year or two, I think. Yeah. Well, we could talk about labor all day, every podcast. It could be every story probably in every issue, and we still wouldn't be able to come up with the answer. Yeah, I agree. We could just go back to talking sports. That was, that was a, a much <laughs> more powerful topic. Well, one other topic, and I'll let you go on this good morning, was your January column, Great Way to Start the Year, books that you read in 2020 that really stuck with you. And the column got so much traction that one of the authors you cited reached out and said, hey, by the way, if you want to read my other book, here's a PDF. And he sent you the entire PDF. So you've even gotten more reading out of a column about books. What books did you really love uh, either last year or books that you've read since that column? 
that have really kind of stuck with you that you would recommend to others? Oh, wow. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is I've always, I've always done the bulk of my reading in the winter months, and then I'll take anywhere from two to three books with me on, on vacation. And when we go on vacation, I always try to take at least one book that's non-golf related. Uh, I don't think I mentioned it in the column, but the non-golf related book I took on vacation last year was Gray Mountain by John Grisham. And, uh, and the reason I took that, it was recommended to me by a friend, and it's because the setting of that book is sort of that um, southwestern Virginia Appalachian Mountain coal region, which is where I'm from originally. And that was why he, he, he was like, you know, I think you would like it just from that perspective. And it, it, was, it was. It was a good, it was a good story. I enjoyed it. Quick read. Um, but... Um, I was a big Payne Stewart fan, and so to read uh, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart was very memorable. And books I've read since the column came out, I've already read three. Um, Between Two Wars by Bernard Darwin. Hmm. He might be the best golf writer of all. If not, he's in the top two or three. So just to have a chance to, to read one of his works was really really special but uh, i gotta be honest with you i i go i stand by what i said in my my column that that story by luke reese one for the memory banks is just it uh an amazing story it really pulls on the heartstrings and it was so much fun to read uh i've had the good fortune to, to play a little bit of lynx golf uh, in Scotland and Ireland, but not much. So believe me, it's not like I'm well-versed. But you're able to just sort of close your eyes and put yourself in the scenes with those with those two, along with their uh, counterparts and compatriots in those stories. And it was just, uh, I highly recommend it for anybody. And then the fact that proceeds go to benefit the National Links Trust. So, hey, you know, we're helping, we're helping ourselves out there. So uh, if you're not familiar with the National Links Trust, look it up online. Do yourself a favor. Excellent. Matthew, always good to talk with you. Always good to have you on Beyond the Page. Matthew Wharton, he is the Backpage columnist, now in his second year on the Backpage of Golf Course Industry Magazine. Follow him online, CGC Greenkeeper uh, at Carolina Golf Club in Charlotte. Matthew Wharton. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. My thanks again to Ron Furlong and Matthew Wharton for sharing their perspective on Beyond the Page. And my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and the OG Tartan Talks right here every Tuesday. Our February issue is online now. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. You can read more industry news and notes in our fast and firm email newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry DeLosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and you just spent the last 25 minutes listening to him, Matthew Wharton. 
We have some fantastic regular contributors, too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong. You heard from him, too. Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales wizards are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. He somehow makes it look handsome and pretty at the same time. Kate McCoy makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Christina might need to supply Russ with more oatmeal cream pies after Andrew took both of them off Russ's desk and gave them to Guy the other day. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than we can ever keep straight. Stephen Webb handles our classifieds. Brittany Cachito, who, again, if you want to be our intern, send her your material, handles HR. Our president is Chris Foster. He's a bit of an IT savant. Worked all weekend with our tech crew to update our systems folders. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Cody. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening.